Good evening. It's great to see all of you again. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10 as we look at the second half of this wonderful chapter. Our sermon text this evening is is verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And as I read these words, remember again that they are God's holy, inspired, and inerrant words written for you and for me this evening. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. Would you go with me in prayer as we seek the Lord's help? Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name by the blood, and through the mediation and power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We know that He is high and lifted up, having conquered sin and Satan and death, and the train of His robe fills the temple that we now cannot see. We praise You that He has come near, near not only in human flesh, but near to us personally, even tonight in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he has once made his tent among us, and we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is even nearer now to the brokenhearted, that he saves the crushed in spirit. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would send forth the Holy Spirit to give us courage from the Scripture so that with unclouded vision, we might see a glimpse of the glory of Christ, that we might know him, that we might receive him 
that we might give ourselves to him as he has given himself to us. For to know you, the eternal God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent is eternal life. Father, help us to know you in this way and have satisfaction not only in this age but in the age to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning a few centuries ago, modern scholars adopted a new way of reading the Gospels of the New Testament. There were essentially two steps to this new approach. First, these scholars denied that the Gospels are the, in fact, written revelation of God. And then secondly, on this new approach, they sought to to find a Jesus who is acceptable to modern sensibilities. As a result of this approach, those who adopted it did not so much read the Gospels so much as try to read through the Gospels because they approached the Gospels as, well, as kind of a a veil filled with outdated religious theology and superstition. And the idea was to penetrate through the veil and find out who Jesus was really. Now, you can probably tell that if you ask that question, who was Jesus really, and you begin to ask that question by sidelining the revelation of God's Word, you've already decided to find a Jesus of your own design. You've already decided to find a scaled-down Jesus, a distorted Jesus, a Jesus who, in fact, is no Jesus at all. The Presbyterian theologian J. Gresson Machen gets to the root of this modern approach to the Gospels in his wonderful book, Christianity and Liberalism. I mentioned in Sunday school this morning that this year marks the centenary of the writing of that book. In that book, Machen writes these words, modern liberalism, and by the way, that's not a political designation, that's that's the term he gives to this approach to the Bible. He says, modern liberalism regards Jesus as merely an example and guide. Christianity regards him as Savior. Liberalism makes him an example for faith. Christianity, the object of faith. The liberal Jesus remains a manufactured figure of the stage. Very different is the Jesus of the New Testament and of the great scriptural creeds. We'll come back to Machen a little bit later on, but for now, I want you to note that whenever we find in Scripture a Jesus who accords with modern tastes and sensibilities, chances are we have already forced him. We have already pressed him into our image. Consider these book titles just from the last 20 years that adopt something of this modern approach. One book titled, Jesus the Man, Jesus the Jewish Theologian, or or my favorite, Jesus the Master Psychologist. I was reminded of this modern approach to the Scriptures by reading verse 24 of our text because this approach is actually much older than 300 years. Look with me at verse 24. It says the Jews gathered around him. In other words, they're they're closing in on him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, they're asking Jesus, who are you really? Now, on the surface, this seems to be a very honest question, a good question. 
But the context of the question tells us that it's anything but. It's really an accusation, isn't it? In effect, they're saying, Jesus, you have been unclear. Jesus, you have been deceptive. You've been evasive. In effect, they're saying, Jesus, if nobody believes in you, the problem actually lies with you. Of course, the problem did not lie with Jesus. It never does. He's not a veil that we have to penetrate through to find the real Jesus. By this point in John's gospel, Jesus has engaged in nearly three years of public ministry. He's made many open statements of the truth. He's performed countless signs and miracles. And yet many of those in his own day rejected him. John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel, sets us up for the rejection we see in this passage right from the beginning of our text in verse 22. We learn that all of this took place near the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication. Now, this feast is not a feast that's commanded by God in the Old Testament. It had only begun to be celebrated about 200 years prior to Jesus' arrival on the earth. And at that time, God had unexpectedly delivered the Jewish people from persecution by the Greeks. As the story goes, a Greek general had invaded and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And a Jew named Judah Maccabee rose up and led a revolt to recover the temple and reinstitute the true worship of God prior to the coming of Christ. And in honor of this event, the Jews celebrated this feast of dedication every year for eight days, and they have done so ever since. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Lights. We know it today as Hanukkah. Well, why would the Apostle John include this little detail in verse 22, this Jewish celebration of an unexpected deliverance by God? Well, I think the answer is fairly clear. John is underscoring the irony of the Jews' rejection of Jesus in this passage. While they're celebrating God's unexpected deliverance of them in the past, they end up rejecting the greatest deliverer of their entire history. And that brings us to the question we want to consider tonight. Why do people reject Jesus? Why did they reject Jesus then, and why do people reject Him today? In our text, Jesus identifies three reasons that I want to explore with you, and I have to warn you, the first reason is the most challenging reason of all. Jesus says first that many reject Him because of God's sovereign determination. Let's go back to verse 24. Notice it reads, How long will you keep us in suspense, they ask. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the first thing that Jesus does is he, he points to the evidence that they were conveniently ignoring. In verse 25, he says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, let's, let's pause just for a moment here and ask this question. Why didn't Jesus say right then and there as he seemed to have said quite directly to the Samaritan woman back in John chapter 4, why didn't he say, I am the Christ? I am the promised Messiah. There you have it, black and white. Well, there are a few reasons why Jesus didn't answer this way. And the first reason is that the Jews in Jesus' time expected the Messiah to be a political deliverer. 
In other words, they expected the Messiah, the, the Christ, which is a title for the Messiah, to be a political deliverer who would release them from the thumb of the Romans, just as Judah Maccabee had done from the Greeks. And so had Jesus said simply, I am the Christ, he immediately would have been misunderstood. Another reason why he didn't answer this way is that as John unfolds his gospel for us, we learn that Jesus' hour had not yet come. That phrase is used again and again. In other words, Jesus is doing everything according to the timetable of his Father in heaven. And the time for that final crisis that would lead to the cross has not yet come. But the third thing we need to recognize is that the answer that Jesus gives in response to their question is perfectly sufficient and adequate. And Jesus says, look at my works, look at my miracles, look at my words, see all that I've said and done. It's all very plain. And then Jesus goes for the jugular, as it were. Jesus reaches down into the unfathomable mystery of the plan of salvation as conceived by the triune God before the world began. Having said in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. Notice what he says in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now notice that Jesus does not say, You're not among my sheep because you do not believe. That would have been true enough. But he puts it the other way around. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not part of my flock. Now, of course, Jesus is building on what we saw him say earlier this morning in the first part of chapter 10 about being the good shepherd. The shepherd, remember, who is known by his sheep, who cares for his sheep, who dies for his sheep, who changes his sheep. But he's saying something else here. Jesus is adding that those who who are and who are not the sheep in his flock ultimately traces back to God's sovereign determination. Notice what he says. He says, I know them, verse 27. I give them eternal life. Why? He says in verse 29, the Father has given them to me. Who who is in the driver's seat here of salvation? Well, it's God. It's God and God alone. Now, friends, I realize this is a very difficult doctrine for many people to accept. Sometimes it's very hard and it, it takes time to wrestle with the fact that God is the one who finally determines just who his sheep are, just who will make up the one flock of Jesus Christ. But if you could just hold on to this thought for a moment, consider what Jesus says next. He teaches us that God's sovereign determination to save And God's power in saving those whom He will is the very foundation for Christian assurance. It's what grounds the Christian's assurance in this life. Listen again to Jesus in verse 28. He says, I give them. Well, who's the them? It's His sheep identified and given to Him from before the foundation of the world. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Don't you see the the fact that the Father determines whom He will save entails that those whom He saves will never be lost. 
for what God purposes to do, that he does without any rival or threat of failure. And if I could speak personally to you tonight, I can tell you that that if God made me the final determiner of my own salvation, I would have lost it years ago. If God made you or made me responsible in the final analysis, if our salvation ultimately depended upon our strength, upon our insight, upon the strength of our faith, as God waited in the wings as a very sympathetic and loving but ultimately helpless bystander, then you and I would have no hope in this life. But this is not the way salvation works. As Calvin puts it so well, he says, quote, the salvation of all the elect is no less certain than the power of God is invincible. For God is not, listen to this, God is not a watcher, but the author of salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is the the Calvinism of Calvin. But it's also the Calvinism of Sproul, Keller, Piper, Packer. It's the Calvinism of Spurgeon and Warfield and Hodge and Edwards, of Owen and Bunyan and Baxter. It's the teaching of Luther and Zwingli. It's the treasure of that African bishop, Augustine. And it's all of these things because it's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep, we know what Jesus means. It's that the Father in heaven together with His Son and the sovereignly blowing Holy Spirit, is supreme in all matters of salvation and in everything else. And this is a fundamental reason why people reject Jesus. Now, before we move on to the next point, we need to remember one more very important thing. And that is that even these Jews' unbelief as it traces back to God's sovereign determination, does not absolve them of a real responsibility to believe on Jesus Christ. The fact that God sovereignly determines whom He will save does not dilute in one one whit the universal offer of the gospel and the sovereign and the responsibility of every man, woman, boy, and girl to believe on Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. In the rest of the chapter, he calls his hearers to believe in him. He says in verse 38, believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, believe my works. <clears throat> There's a real sense in which the door of salvation is, is open wide even to them. And we could say that if Jesus, who knew who would and would not believe, and he still proclaimed the gospel to them, then how much more should you and I preach and proclaim the gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl when we have no idea whom the Father has set apart for himself? For the offer is real, and it is as real as the responsibility for every hearer to respond. Well, Jesus goes on, and he shows us in this text that his hearers reject him for another reason as well not only because of God's sovereign determination, but secondly, because of Jesus' staggering claims. In verse 31, they pick up stones to kill Jesus because he's just closed in verse 30 by saying, I and the Father are one. 
And his hearers, thinking him to be a mere man, believed that he was blaspheming God, putting himself on par with God. And so they seek to put him to death without trial. Now, this is a theme in John's gospel as well. This is the third time this has happened. Back in John 5, after Jesus said he was doing the work of his father, we read these words. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then again in John chapter 8, right after Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. We read this, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So again here in John 10. And I would submit to you that the same is true today. And if this is a reason, if ever there were a reason why people reject Jesus, it is this. That this one who has come so close to us claimed to be the living God. And this is simply too much for the fallen human heart to take. To go back to Machen and his book, he says in that book that, that many people today will take Jesus to be the example of faith. But Jesus presents himself as more. He presents himself as the object of faith. What does Machen mean? He, he says, Jesus doesn't simply say, have faith like I have faith. Exhibit a nearness to God the way that I exhibit a nearness to God. No, Jesus says, put your faith in me. Many today will take Jesus as a model for peace and goodwill among, among humanity, but Jesus presents himself as much more. He presents himself as the son in the flesh who died to secure our peace with God. Many will have him as a herald of the gospel of love, but, but Jesus presents himself as more. He presents himself as the very good news itself, as the one who takes away our sin, as the one who gives us life in himself. Well, who is this object of faith? Who is this gospel-embodying Savior? The answer is very simple. He is God. He is God. He is the one who knows every nook and cranny of our hearts, who knows everything we've ever done, and who loves us still. He is the one. He is the Son. He is the one whom the Father has appointed to rule the earth, to judge every human being on the last day. And if all this is a reason why people reject him, then then the way that people often reject him, the way that they keep him at arm's length so frequently is by mishandling his word. And you see, this is what happens in our passage, isn't it? After the Jews seek to kill him for his staggering claims, Jesus refutes them by pointing out how they have misunderstood the Old Testament. And he does it by drawing from a very obscure Old Testament text in verse 34, a text that he quotes as saying, I said, you are gods. Now, for us, this is an Old Testament text where we need to kind of pull off the cobwebs and blow the dust off. It's a text that comes from Psalm 82, verse 6. And the full verse reads this way, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, in the context of Psalm 82, this is God speaking, and he's referring to human judges in Israel. Judges, by the way, who had failed in their task as judges. And the text calls them gods with a little g, because despite their being poor judges, 
They were given a high and holy calling from God himself. Well, what's the argument that Jesus is making, therefore? Well, he's saying that if the Old Testament uses this word gods with a little g to refer to mere human judges to whom God had given a high and holy task, how much more fitting is it for Jesus to be called the Son of God, having been sent into the world for the highest and holiest task of saving sinners? In other words, Jesus is not denying that he's made these staggering claims. He's simply denying that his opponents have any justifiable basis for wanting to kill him for it. By the way, as an aside, in the middle of this argument, we dare not miss that little parenthetical statement that Jesus makes in verse 35. He simply says, almost as a throwaway comment, and the Scripture cannot be broken. What a wonderful little insight into Jesus' own view of Scripture. Every line, down to the tiniest word, in the most obscure verse, is for him the infallible and authoritative Word of God. All of it is the Word of God which, which unwaveringly converges to support the most staggering claims that Jesus makes about himself. Well, people reject Jesus because of God's sovereign determination, and they reject him for his staggering claims. But thirdly and finally, we learn that Jesus is rejected because of his solidarity with the Father. His solidarity, I mean his unity with the Father. Now, this is very similar to Jesus' statement, uh, uh, his claim to be the divine Son, but it's slightly different. Because not only does Jesus claim to be the divine Son, but here he begins to teach us that as the divine Son, everything that he ever said or did was one great revelation of who God the Father is. Everything he did was in harmony with and a a full disclosure of the Father in heaven. A revelation of his union with God the Father. Now, when we... When we think about Jesus' union with the Father, I think it's helpful to think of that union in three ways. First, there is a union of purpose, a union of purpose. God the Father and Jesus His Son are united in the purpose of their saving mission. This is what Jesus meant back in verse 30, in fact, when He said, I and the Father are one. He was talking there about the Christian's security. Remember, he said believers will never perish because no one will snatch them out of his hand. And then immediately he goes on to say, believers will never perish because no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. His purpose and the Father's purpose are one. And one application we can take from this is that we can know that the Father is no bystander in the ministry of Christ. The Father is the one who, out of love, sent Christ for your salvation. There's a union of purpose. Secondly, there's a union between the Father and the Son, a union of being. That's in the deep background of verse 30 as well, but it's front and center in Jesus' use of Psalm 82, that there is a union of, of the divine nature between the Father and the Son. For if if God called human judges gods, this is Jesus' argument again, how much more should Jesus, the Son of God, be called God in a unique and holy sense of the term? Christians, we we can know that just as the Father is God, everything that the Father is as God, so too Jesus is as the divine Son of God. 
For there is one God, and there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God in three persons. And each person is not one-third of God. No, each person is the fullness of God, and yet there is only one God. There's a union of purpose, a union of being, but then third and finally, between the Father and the Son, there is a union of mutual indwelling. Mutual indwelling. That is to say, within the Trinity, among the persons of the Trinity, there is an exhaustive indwelling of one with the others in perfect union. Friends, we simply can't get out of John's gospel without noting that theologians refer to this eternal, mutual, person-in-person indwelling with the term perichoresis. It's a big theological term for a Sunday night service. Perichoresis. It comes from the Greek word meaning around and to make room. What is perichoresis? It refers to the internal fellowship of the persons of the triune God. It refers to an internal movement of persons, a, a living and dynamic relating of the persons, each individually and all together as the one true and living God. Douglas Kelly, a professor at RTS in Charlotte, now retired, says this, perichoresis is a way of saying that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit inhere in one another. They coexist eternally, entirely, and perfectly so that where one is, the others are. And what one is involved in doing, the others are also involved in doing. And Jesus refers to this eternal fellowship as as precisely that which all of his works reveal. Notice he says in verse 35, they reveal that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's a fellowship of person in person. Friends, if ever there were a doctrine that could so beautifully capture the eternal and inscrutable oneness in the Trinity and threeness in unity in the triune God at the heart of everything that God is and does. It is this doctrine of perichoresis. But how how does that doctrine affect you and me today? Well, it affects us in this way. It is that this triune God, through Jesus Christ in the gospel seeks to replicate in your fellowship with himself something of the similar kind of intimacy that the Father and the Son and the Spirit know in their fellowship with one another. It is that when you come to believe on Christ and you are united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God comes to indwell you and you begin to indwell in God. Now, now to be very clear, we do not become divine when we become a Christian. Jesus, in His divine identity, is the eternal divine Son. So our fellowship with the Trinity is not the same as the perichoretic fellowship of the persons of the triune Godhead. But there is a similar kind of intimacy, a similar kind of mutual giving, where when you believe on Jesus, much more than simply having your sins forgiven, there is a sense in which God Himself becomes your home. And when you believe on Christ, God makes His home with you. What a beautiful and wonderful reality of the Christian life. 
We are to, to bask in the mutual fellowship of God with us and we with God forever and ever as a, as a faint reflection, as finite creatures united to the risen Christ, a faint reflection of the glorious intimacy and fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the triune God. Well, surveying all of these reasons why people reject Jesus, I hope you see by the end of our study of this text tonight that these very reasons are the very reasons why people must receive Him, why you must love Him, why you must adore Jesus as your Savior, as He promises to receive all who come to Him. The Father has given an innumerable multitude of sinners to His Son from before the foundation of the world, and in time they will surely come to Him. And so we must say, come to Him. Come to Him. Come to Him in true faith. And know you are counted among his sheep. This is how it works. You respond to the gospel message. You lay hold of Christ. You say, yes, he is my Savior. And you know that you are counted among his sheep, given to him from before the foundation of the world. Secondly, we can know that Jesus can save us. He can save us from sin and Satan and death itself. He can sustain us through this new year because he is the divine Son of God. He is the one who is united with the Father in deity. And all of Scripture, from the tiniest word to the most explicit prophecy, declares Him to be the true Son and the eternal God. How does this affect us this year? It is, it is this, that, that we must live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must, we must commit ourselves to the word, to live by it day and night. And then finally, all of Jesus' works lift our eyes to the ineffable unity the unity of purpose, the unity of being, and the unity of perichoretic fellowship among the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we must know that the similar kind of intimacy God seeks with you and me in our covenant union with Him through Christ. So what are we to do? We're to give ourselves to Christ wholly and completely, knowing that He's given Himself to us. We are to give ourselves to Christ, but not to a Christ as we wish Him to be, but to the Christ as he reveals himself to be in the pages of Scripture, as he really is offered in the gospel. And this is what many did in the final verses of our text. As as Jesus retreats to the place of the beginning of his ministry, out in the wilderness, beyond the Jordan, back to the place where John the Baptist was ministering at the first, and the people went and found him there. They found him whom John the Baptist declared to be the true son and the living God. Brothers and sisters, there may be so many today. There may be modern scholars, but there may be ordinary people who, who seek after a Jesus that is acceptable to modern standards. And the Jesus of modern scholars will, will give people what the world pines after. But he will remain a figment of the world's desires. But as J. Gresson Machen puts it in the book, and we'll close with this, this is what what Machen says, quote, The Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern Reconstruction. He is real. He is a genuine person whom we can love. Men have loved him through all the Christian centuries, and the strange thing is that despite all the efforts to remove him from the pages of history, there are those who love him still. By God's sovereign grace, 
May you and I be counted among that number in this age and in the age to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious, true, living, risen Christ of Scripture. We thank you that we can give ourselves wholly and completely to him, for he has laid down his life that he may take it up again. Thank you that you have called us into fellowship with him. Lord, I pray that if there be any here who do not know him, who do not know him in a saving way, that you would effectually call them into fellowship with Christ, that you would grant to them the gift of faith. And Father, I pray that those who do know him would know him in ever-deepening, ever-joy-inducing, ever-courage-inflaming intimacy as we give ourselves to him out of the love that overflows from the love that you have poured into us. Father, may we have fellowship with you, not only through your word, but as we approach the table tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name.